it was frustrating. It was difficult. It was traumatic. Telephone companies went broke. They bought and sold each other. The history of that sort of 20-year period is extraordinarily interesting in the way that old-style management and old-style ways of running a business in what they thought were regional or local monopolies. And they were competing not with each other, as it turned out. They were competing with computers. They were competing on different technological platforms, and their old telephone system was losing the fight, just losing. And so it was adapt or die in very stark terms. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, I'm talking to Jeff Houston from APNIC Labs in his regular monthly spot on Ping. Jeff and I discussed the tension between content and carriage as modern broadband network deployments start to worry about the cost of service. At the right meeting held in May, Jeff had a talk about the regulatory tensions in Europe, which are emerging between content providers like Netflix and European ISPs, who want to recover costs both sides of the content distribution and consumption story. Jeff, welcome back. Oh, George, it's good to be here again. So, uh, yes, good morning. I think it's still morning one way or another. So I think it might be. Yeah. What have you got for us this time? Well, last time when we spoke about time, I assume we're going to have this in the right order. Yes, this is going to happen <laughs> in the right order. There was a really good presentation at the right meeting in Rotterdam. So this is a continuation of things that you got to see in the European policy and internet meeting cycle. There were a couple of presentations that just sparked my interest. Yeah. And I don't want to recount the presentation per se, but the context of why the presentation is important, why that topic is important, and sort of Looking a bit behind the lines as to the dimensions of this and what's going on really and maybe how it's going to play out, who knows. So, tell us a story. So, Rudolf van den Berg, he used to work at the OECD, is now working in the Dutch regulatory environment. And he was actually reporting on a current set of tensions within the internet industry with particular reference to Europe. Right. And... On the face of it, the carriage providers, so let's talk about, you know, Orange, France Telecom, Deutsche Telekom, et cetera, are claiming that they're making massive investments of their capital to lift up the infrastructure from groaning century-old copper loops into bright, sparkly photon fibre optic cables that have all this content. Now, I know a few people who are domestic consumers in Europe, and I think they might question the extent to which they see evidence of this capital investment, because people do grumble about the quality of the CPE and the the local loop. But let's put that to one side. They're making a claim. I'm I'm, I'm giving you the case. They're making a claim that this is an investment they're making. The case of the carriage providers saying, and if you want better stuff, if you want to get away from this, someone's going to spend money, and it's our job access carriage, the last mile providers, 
to spend that money and make that better. Well, that's pretty undeniable. And if we go back to the monopoly telephone network, Model, then we funded these activities on bonds and with council and national investment. We were expecting a long investment return. We were expecting the copper to be in the ground for a long time, 25, 50, 70 years. That was the scale of public investment for capital return. Right. That's not how people behave now, is it? Well, without sort of worrying too much about the capital markets, and yes, the cost of capital has increased a lot, and putting money in the ground to build fibre doesn't actually give you normally very high returns. Oddly enough, that's why the mobile operators did so well in the 2000s, even 2010s, because for every dollar you put in, you actually made real money back because people paid a lot more for mobile service than fixed wire telephony. And so fixed wire telephony is regarded as slum centre low rent, low return, low everything, mobiles, bright, shiny, new, let's make money. And the theory was data would do the same at a bigger level, that putting in fibre would be new and wonderful. But when you actually look at why, why you need gigabit infrastructure relayed to every individual residence, to every household, to every home place, then the stark reality kind of hits you around the head this is all about video streaming. This is all about replacing broadcast television with narrowcast streaming. This is all about Netflix. Okay, let's go there. Why not? Let's just go there. And their argument is, I really can't charge my consumers, let's talk about euros because that's a convenient currency, thousands of euros a month. For a gigabit service? No, we've had a conversation over many years <laughs> that we pay a bit rate for an SMS message that if you translate that 140 bytes into 140 megabits as bytes for an hour, a movie would cost a million euros. Right, so no one's going to buy it. And, and even if you bring the, the numbers sort of somewhat back to earth, the telcos, the access folk are saying consumers couldn't afford it. We want to do it, but as long as Netflix gets a free ride, <laughs> I'm using their language, yeah. Netflix gets a free ride, then this is impossible. Tell you what, oh, European policymakers, if you want us to do gigabits for EU, gigabits for Europe, if you want us to put all this bandwidth and capacity in the European market, those folk who are riding on our coattails, charging users ever higher prices, all the streamers are upping their prices, then why should we if all we're doing is making money for them? Oh, and by the way, psst, they're all American. So there's a little bit of transatlantic jealousy mixed in with this European argument. This is quite a complicated story because there are many different dimensions to what is essentially a conversation about cost and price. And you've honed in on their line of reasoning, and I think it's a, a well-understood line of reasoning. They have to spend money to build this technology. Their rate of extraction of value from it is fairly low. We've traditionally used things like both bandwidth and data volume as a basis of charging. But if they expose customers to 
volume of data, things like movies simply can't be charged at the same rate as things like email messages or even voice. And yet there are these other people who are injecting data into the network who are extracting far higher rates of return for that ability to put data in. Why aren't they paying? Now, the dimension of they're all Americans, you could translate that into Asia or Africa or South America. There would be no national economy or environment of competitive telco business that didn't sit up and look at this saying, that observation could apply to me. So although the conversation might have been in Europe, it's a global question. So this time around, there were previous conversations in America around net neutrality. They were largely swaying around in the breeze between the network should be neutral, it should just charge everyone the same, live with it, versus, yeah, go and see what you can extort from the, the, the folk who are using your network, it's an open slather. And depending on the political inclinations of who's in power in the White House and who controls the FCC, the debate has shifted around in various dimensions. But it's true, this is the same debate, a public debate, in almost every sector on the planet, I believe. And in a political debate, every weapon is good. And so if you bring in a bit of xenophobia, not invented here, yeah. you know, those evil other people are busy running all over the place, making money from our worthy stalwart citizens and just tracking the money back home. And Maybe we shouldn't ask too many questions about who's invested in Orange and the other telcos supplying this service in Europe. That's a question of a different kind. That's a question they're, of They're spending the money in Europe to European citizens' benefit and they're looking to who is spending money and making money. So why has this debate started again? Because it's been hovering around for, geez, I think 20 years, maybe 30 years. And it's gone through a number of generations. And, and I've always characterised it as content versus carriage. Right. And if you take the view of content versus carriage, you can go back a few centuries. And we're in toll roads and canals. And right. Do I have the right to charge more because you're sending gold, not this coal? All these questions. Who owns the toll gates on the provision of the service of goods between A and B? And how much can they vary the price of carriage depending on what's in the car? What's in the car? And if the goods being moved are more valuable, then I want a bigger cut versus... It's just a good. I have no idea what's in the box. Yep. It's the same price. And sitting alongside this is the public utility question. What actually suits us collectively as society, deciding whether we spend public funds to build and run infrastructure or whether we ask competitive companies to tender to provide those solutions? Well, for reasons, and very hard to get into in a small podcast, we deregulated the telephone industry, and we eliminated public funding at the same time in most countries, except Australia. We basically said, look, it's up to you. You're not a public company. You're not reporting to us, the government. You're not part of consolidated revenue. It's a market. Raise capital, provide service. Here are some regulatory framework that don't go over there. Act like a common carrier, but be a private enterprise. So act like a common carrier, carrier was the strong signal, you're not going to differentiate based on payload value to determine how you extract, let's call it, rent. And bizarrely, 
that's the compact that happened with Theodore Vail and Congress in the US in 1916 or so. I promise, he said, hand on, I assume he had a heart. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Sorry, Theodore. I will be an enlightened private public utility. I will operate in the public interest without being publicly owned. I will assume that mantle, but you're not going to own me or run me. I will not dip my hand into the public purse. I will raise my own money, fund my own debt, and provide one service for all of America. Geez, I'm good. Whereas every other country went, uh, don't believe you. This is national strategic. This is important. This is expensive. Our capital markets aren't big enough. We'll create the national BT, the national France Telecom, Australia's Telecom, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Because many folk disbelieved this idea that a public enterprise could actually be privatised and still operate in the public sphere. So we laid the roots in modern communications culture a long, long time before internet emerged of the idea we could make choices here. This could be done as a national enterprise. This could be done as private enterprise. The rules were kind of understood, but people had different views. The Americans always felt that they were being victimised. Because, you see, when you got to an international governmental treaty body, international being the operative word, then when the Americans arrived, it was Department of State, the representative of the United States of America. This was their foreign affairs department. And around the table were a whole bunch of other representatives of their state who owned their phone company. Now, AT&T, which was the American phone company, either took a seat at the table, surrounded by governments, but it wasn't one, or somehow to work out with state what the deal was. And some of these deals were (sighs) anomalous. You see, the world as a world has a real problem with wealth distribution. It's not exactly an even It's not exactly even. And there are large parts of the world that do not enjoy the access to resources that smaller, more selective parts of the world do. And for reasons... And it's hard to actually understand where this came from, but I suspect it was in the 50s when there was a fair amount of reforming zeal going on that the huge amounts of money that were washing inside the telephone system could be repositioned to actually perform structural redistribution of wealth from rich to poor. There were analogous activities that took place. So there's no real reason in America that workers' health funds come as part of their conditions of employment. It was a convenience function to tie it to the kind of behaviours that companies were doing, extracting tax from payroll tax and paying for goods and services with their employees. They could have separated their health system from terms of employment. They didn't. So if you're looking at something like public telephony and saying there's an adjustment in who's making calls and who's receiving calls, and this incurs cost and is a mechanism of revenue, saying, hmm, let's use this for some social readjustment and rebalancing. Okay, that seems to make sense. You're talking about a shift of capital from government public sector in Europe to, say, public sector government in Africa. Yeah. You could do this as, I label this as aid, here's a you know, bucket yeah. of money, 
Or you could simply go, we'll pay more to ground our telephone calls to your people than you pay us if you you ring us. We will basically shunt money as, well, aid, whatever, but use our government-operated telephone networks to do this to achieve the outcome we're after without going through all the rigmarole. Now, people who are listening to this podcast who are younger than a certain age, perhaps people who think phones started with Nokia handsets with buttons, may not remember a prior time. But you and I, Jeff, can remember a prior time when there were some rather cute tricks that would happen in the telephone network. So if I've got a phone and I'm in country A and you've got a phone and you're in country B, you can sit there waiting for me to call you or I can sit there waiting for you to call me. Well and good. But you've just said the price, depending on you calling me or me calling you, is different. You see, I paid for the telephone call if I made the call. Yep. I paid my local operator in Australia. Now, let's say that your phone is in a bodega somewhere in New York with an immigrant community that come from West Africa, and you have a lot of single men who want to speak to their family, and I happen to be the telephone operator in a West African economy with a lot of mothers who would like to speak to their sons. And the question is, who gets to make the cheaper call, the mother or the son? Was it I might have paid for the call yep. to call you in another country, yep. but your operator, your telephone company, yep. incurred cost in terminating that call. Right. And I'm not paying them yet because I'm paying my telephone company for the total end-to-end cost. But my telephone company is only incurring costs to sort of get the call out of the country, and that's where their money stops. So if they take all of my money and don't compensate the terminating operator, this isn't going to work. You have the the, right distortion of market. So I can have a queue of mummies and a queue of sons, and we can actually run a little private network across here. The way this worked was that the governments around the table, and I stress again, governments around the ITU table, agreed that it was quite okay to have the terminating telephone company, charge the originator per minute, per call minute. And there was even a recommended tariff, although it's just a recommendation, charge what you want, right? Yeah. So you could set the prices really, really high, or you could set them really, really low. If you set your terminating payments really, really low, then folk in other countries would kind of be incented, in theory, to call you. If you set them really, really high, you'd make outgoing calls but no incoming. So you can push and pull the load of your who starts a call depending on how you set prices between your 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 economies. call accounting settlement rates. So let's then go back to your friends and, and their counterparts in New York. What the African telephone company, and I, I shouldn't, it could have been South America, it, it could, could have been, been Australia, it could, could have been Australia or it Europe. It could have been France. Yep. And it was. Yep. If I make my terminating charges really high, yes, yep. then the general idea is you call them, right? And I have to pay. But if I got it leveraged so there is no choice and they have to call me, I make money. And so, If 
sons never call their mothers, but mothers only call their sons, then you construct the rates so that you make money from a forced decision. Yeah. So this international call accounting settlement system got refined over the decades. And I remember hearing at some point that more than 90% of the Laotian GDP was call accounting settlement payments from AT&T. So this became a mechanistic vehicle for transferring money between economies that was really kind of a bit divorced from the reality of what people wanted from a public telephone network. So after about 20, 30 years of experience over what's going on with the public system, certainly the US interests, which were commercial, not governmental, felt that this system had reached the end of its useful life and placed extraordinary pressure on everybody else to move, to deregulate, to privatise telephony. Take the states away from the table discussing these Take settlements. Take structural redistribution of wealth off the table. Stop victimising America here. And obviously, AT&T was a violent proponent, but America was also a large amount of capital in development. So they used to do such things such as the... Um, the IMF and other forms of international financial aid tying market reforms to funding. Yeah, we need to see that you change the nature of employer-employee relations before we will give you money. We will give you money if you deregulate and privatise your phone company. Yeah. And across the 80s and 90s, there was this wave of deregulation in communications that there was extraordinary pressure from America to actually change the rules and remove communications as a public sector run activity into a private sector activity undertaking a public function. So it's quite interesting that it's across the 80s and 90s because that matches the need for a prior investment in telephone technology built around mechanical exchanges and copper lines to transit into a more modern world of packet-switched phone exchanges and ultimately the move away from analog voice into digital voice. There was a lot of capital investment to be made. So the timing of we're liberalizing a market in telephony, new protocols are emerging, hit the 90s, it might not just be about voice. It's about provision of this other internet-y thing in the same framework. There was another part to this, which was consumers were willing to pay the same amount for the service of speaking. And digitising the phone network might have cost a small amount, certainly cost, but the operating savings were so enormous that digitising gave them a massively increased margin as long as prices remained high. So in essence, the phone companies, rather than running a conventional business with conventional business returns, were now sitting on a gold mine and they were newly privatised. Yeah. And this was just manna from heaven, yep. right? So let's make money. Now, that lasted for a small amount of time until, yay, deregulation and computers joined together called the internet. And all of a sudden, folk were looking at voice as just something my computer does. It's no longer the core activity. It's no longer the rich golden goose laying golden eggs over there in telephone land. 
It must have been very strange inside a telco that was built as a model around billing for minutes of telephony, confronting customers who buy a device called an iPhone, and the last thing in the world they want to do is speak into it. It was frustrating, it was difficult, it was traumatic. Telephone companies went broke, they bought and sold each other. The history of that sort of 20-year period is extraordinarily interesting in the way that old-style management and old-style ways of running a business in what they thought were regional or local monopolies. And they were competing not with each other, as it turned out. They were competing with computers. They were competing on different technological platforms, and their old telephone system was losing the fight, just losing. And so it was adapt or die in very stark terms. So if we consider content just for a moment, traditional content delivery was based around broadcast. Public utility function would be to supply towers and radio systems to distribute, and then television companies and radio companies would apply for licensing rights to use slots of radio frequency, and they would then broadcast to an entire community the same six o'clock news, the same movie at seven o'clock, the same late night chat show. That technology was built around a particular model of the cost of distribution as a broadcast function and clients receiving and paid for predominantly in advertising. Well, that plus the narrow cast of speaking. So the residual voice market wasn't susceptible to broadcast, surprise, surprise, because these are point-to-point yep. conversations. Don't want anyone and, else and, in that. You know, 100 years of training society had figured out you paid per call per minute or, yep. or some variation. So the billing model is that people using this function pay, but yeah. we now move into convergence. In the internet, and all of a sudden, there's one medium is being used for everything. Yes. And the amount of capacity, bandwidth, resource being used to speak tiny. When we talk about hundreds of megs or gigabits to the home, voice is... It's not voice. You need an atomic microscope to actually see what's going on with voice. It's not voice. And in some ways, trying to build voice as if it was everything is never going to work. So there's this pressure on the networks to redo their infrastructure because copper's getting old, it rusts, it needs renewal. But now you haven't got voice to pay for it. And if you haven't got governments to pay for it, it's got to pay for itself. And it's certainly true that if I replace that copper with fiber, photonics is cheap, photonics is low energy, the operating costs are low, it doesn't rust, and it's massive. And so what we're finding, of course, is that a whole new wave of replacement has happened. So the internet, I don't think, built anything new they just disrupted old industries. Whoever sends anyone birthday cards through the postal mail service versus an SMS message or an email note or or whatever going, a Facebook page going, happy birthday. It's not that we stopped wishing each other happy birthday, we just changed the mechanism. And so content is seductive. Content is everything in terms of streaming and video in particular, movies the lot, But broadcast television is starting to lose out. Massively. Because of the price point of streaming this over modern networks is low enough that all of a sudden, these folk are now going, 
It's not 800 channels on cable. It's 800,000 videos you can play through various streaming services. And if you look at the global traffic share right now, Google, which you could largely argue is YouTube, YouTube video, is around 20% of the traffic share of these over-the-top streamers. So by volume, Google is massive. Facebook video, 15%. Netflix doesn't dominate. Netflix is only at 9%. YouTube's very popular. And there's Apple TV and there's Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. Now, these services have a small amount of freemium where people are doing advertising and there's a revenue stream from advertising sources. And they have growing stream of people paying a monthly subscription and there's a certain amount of pay for view and all of that money is a flow between the edge client and these content owners and the carriage service in between that's mediating the bitstream is not receiving payment directly for any of this delivery. Well, that's the bit that's under debate. A long time ago in telephone world, it didn't matter if you predominantly made calls or answered calls, you were an incline of the telephone network and you got charged the same as everyone else. And if you predominantly paid to make calls, if you just answered them, the bill was a lot lower. It was the standing cost but of being able to it, be called. It didn't matter what you did, business, provider, and consumer. It was everyone's the same. From the world of telephony, everybody's a customer. Yeah. And if I say to you, Jeff, here's a million dollars, it cost me a 20 cent call. There's no variable amount because it was a big sum right. of money. So when the phone company mentality got shifted to the internet, the gut reaction, at least in the early days, was to treat everyone the same. I host content. I stream content. You're just a customer. You look like all the other folk in residential houses. You just have a bigger bandwidth. So I'm going to charge by access capacity. You're going to pay me. And so the early days were, if you wanted to put content on the internet, you were just another customer. You just paid the carriage provider. There's no free rides here, nothing. Now, the content folk were trying desperately hard to make a business model work. And if they had to pay the carriage provider, as well as trying to somehow get money out of the end user, what was broadcast for free was now streamed for a really big price. And their cost component to make that sale to customers now included a bandwidth and, and, and so the approach was made into the carriage providers going, you know, the only reason why people buy your internet service, the real reason... Is to get to is our... Is to get to our content. Now, if you charge us through the roof... We're going to charge them and we're going to lose and you're going to lose as well. You're going to have to actually carry this stuff as part of the service and the consumer will pay. And that was kind of the argument that got forced through. And the carriage provider, which was desperately trying to make the internet somehow viable, kind of saw the population of the internet with content that they couldn't provide. They were just the carriage people that content made this economy work. And so they kind of lived with it. 
There are complicating elements alongside this because there's the question of whether there actually is a real cost to having that content. Sure, if they're outside your network but they talk directly to you, they have a leased line and they have to pay service delivery for that leased line and it implies infrastructure in you that you're looking to recover. If they lie the other side of a BGP peering arrangement, you don't actually have a basis to get money well, out of them. Let me bring this into context here, because I had a lot to do with the early days of the internet in Australia. A small island continent with almost no content. So during, geez, late 90s, early 2000s, about three quarters of the traffic that got tipped off the network to consumers, whatever it might have been, had to be imported into the country, brought through from folk that the local ISPs had no business relationship. No way to get funds out of them. And our folk that we worked with in the States, in Asia and so on, who were our transit partners, weren't going to pay us. No. It was, we were paying them. So money was flowing out, not in, and the only source of revenue was from consumers. Cleanish in some ways, simple to understand. So the Australian ISPs did not pay or get paid for the content. Content was somewhere over there and they weren't customers of the local ISP. So this was something that you had to get from your local paying people, no matter how you did it. And you couldn't really make the content folk pay. Well, let's roll forward into a modern world with content delivery networks who have gone well, very hard into distributing the content as close as possible to the customer. Well, th this was the, the rise, and it started in a number of places, and, and America is a good example because there they did have content. And we were experimenting with content distribution models that rather than the content being a long way away and no direct relationship, the content folk in trying to offer a better service were trying to position their content closer and closer to the user. Makes sense. On the same network. And all of a sudden, they were within the scope yes. of you've got to pay. They've become reachable for a billing arrangement. And the response from content was, so if I put an ISP in the middle between you and me, I don't have to pay. If I eliminate that, I do. That sounds like highway robbery. That sounds like extortion. That sounds like manipulation of market. Ain't going to happen. Oh, and by the way, we have compelling content if we can do a deal with your competitor, I don't think you'll have any customers next week. So common carrier is kind of in some ways carrying the seeds of its own destruction because that's the quality that is essentially under discussion. If you're a common carrier, who do you get to charge? Well, exactly. And this was kind of simmering and there were various rounds of this. And in America, it was kind of, I will take, what was it, BitTorrent traffic and I will degrade its performance. I will take video streaming content, but I will make it worse unless the content provider pays me money to treat it in better ways. All of which was a bit crude and a bit silly. And we've had versions of this in Korea, I believe. Well, that I was, was gonna, a conversation. I was going to get to Korea because Korea has actually been the triggering point twice. So the first case actually concerned, I'm trying to think, I think it was Samsung who make television sets. And this is back in 2012, and they're experimenting with 8K television. Now, 8K definition TV, I'm sure most of you have seen it now, is astonishingly good. There's a lot of bits on <laughs> that screen. It's a lot of bits. So pushing it through 
the access networks is a lot of effort. And the Koreans, in their effort to make what they thought was the fastest broadband network with the biggest reticulation on the planet, all kinds of stirring words about big and fast, actually didn't build it that way. They built really good tail loops running up and down the elevator shafts, and they delivered a gigabit clock into the apartments. But when you went down the shaft and looked at the reticulation network, there was nothing. So they built the highest speed broadband in the OECD rankings, but they were delivering a fairly low megabits, not gigabits, right. to the building, to the endpoints. So and the cost of retooling to make it truly gigabit was a complete was, capital was reinvestment. So customers were buying Samsung televisions and wanting their beautiful 8K streaming content, and the carriage provider in Korea was going, no, no can't do this. This is just, we haven't got yeah. the capacity in our articulation network to service you. And the answer was, well, you should pay Samsung. And Samsung's there before. I'm sorry, we're just the television manufacturer. You've got the problem. They said, well, okay, we're going to block all your MAC addresses. We're going to make these televisions not work over our network. Off they trundled to the courts. And the Korean judicial system at the time came back with a judgment that said, you know, Samsung, you're right. You, a telephone, you know, access ISP, you're wrong, suck it. Just live with it. So that was the first one. Right, and the telephone companies of the world largely ignored that decision because it didn't go their way. But about a year and a half ago, it came back with Netflix. Now, Netflix doesn't stream from Korea. It streams from Japan. It's not in the country. But Netflix is moderately big. It's a lot of content and it's got good HD and it's very popular in Korea. And the quality of that, which Netflix also publishes, is a big determinant. Yeah. Which ISP should I go with? So the decision to have an infrastructure that was now visibly being measured by the content provider telling the client, I'm sorry, your ISP can't deliver HD, and the potential for them to look around and say, hmm, I'll get someone who does. Pick someone else, that's moving the market. Off they trundle to court. Now, somehow Netflix is in court. At that point, Japan, not Korea, but okay, they're in court. And this time, the court rules in favor of the Korean access provider and against the Japanese point of presence of the American content provider. Oh, how predictable. At which point one would imagine the telcos of the world sit up. Pricked up their ears and said, time to polish off the old arguments and time to bring it back. But it's the same old argument. And even politicians don't like hearing the same rusty old tune. But there was one thing in Europe that was sort of a strategic weakness in the public policy domain. Because public policy was desperately trying to incent better infrastructure in Europe. Your tales of this stuff stinks, you know, the copper's creaky, the the fiber doesn't work properly. It's just badly built, old creaking infrastructure, do something better. So they're searching for the reinvestment to deliver high-speed fiber service into dense populations in Europe, but they don't want national exchequer funds to do it. They're looking to private providers. Well, the national exchequer doesn't want to pay for it. No, and there's no monopoly here. And, And so they tied it to content. You want gigabits for every citizen? 
Netflix, Google, Amazon have to pay. We're not going to build this high-speed infrastructure unless Netflix, Google. So it's a bit of, again, a, a re-round of the same battle, but this time we're actually holding the gigabit for a EU program hostage at gunpoint, kind of going, unless you do this for us and regulate these foreign companies to That's pay, quite a different twist. It's on gone the, nasty. On the argument. It's gone very nasty. But these companies are desperate people. They can see the fact that they're being endlessly on the hook. They don't have control of what they carry over their networks. And the content folk don't have a relationship with them. They have a relationship with end customers. And so in some ways, the customers are paying the carrier to get everything the customer wants. And the carrier is kind of going, the only way I can do this is to really up my fees. And that's going to be politically problem. Yeah. And you're asking me to reinvest in high speed and, and, and I'm going to fold my arms at this point and go, no, no, let me charge more people and I'll do this. But if you don't, I won't. And you kind of think, well, it might sound crude, but you know, this industry works on very simple principles. It is very crude. We're actually charging European content folk because there are none of any great substance. Apologies to OVH. But by and large, this is just repatriation of capital across the Atlantic in the other way. Yay! So there is an alignment of European Union intergovernmental views on extraterritorial funds, the economic weight of Europe against America, I, well, international economic competition. There are components of this story that are very old, very so old it, stories. France, for instance, rigorously defends intellectual property rights to assert French content must be made in France. So it touches upon some very sensitive, nervous points in the political debate in Europe. But I should stress, this is just lobbying. They haven't made a decision, but the parties are lining up, presenting their arguments, pushing every button, trying to basically get the EU in one of their moves to actually regulate in terms of gigabits for EU about giving access for the carriers to charge the content providers to ship their content. There would not be an economy or an economic union on the planet that wasn't looking at this activity thinking, do we have a version of this conversation? And they've even drafted some measures. Thank you, GSMA and Etno. And the current draft is, any content source that delivers more than 5% of peak traffic load, none of our people, you see, more than 5% of peak traffic load should pay for an EU access provider to deliver that content to EU customers. So if you're big, you pay, and you pay the access providers to deliver it. If you're small, you don't, right? And this, they promise, will allow us to make the capital investment in gigabit infrastructure across all of Europe. I'd be very surprised if that's the simple solution we arrive at at the end of this discussion. <laughs> I've got poor track record for predicting how things play out in the internet. I'm on record as having told my university to ignore the web. It was an irrelevancy and we should stick to gopher. So I don't feel on firm ground here, Jeff, but I don't have a feeling that the content companies are simply going to accede 
to this proposal. On the other hand, infrastructure needs investment. And you can't run copper forever and it doesn't go very fast. And if you're in this sort of private sector business and you're not willing to re-nationalise the access networks, and only Australia went that way, no one else has. If you wish this to remain a private sector activity and not dip their hands into the taxation pocket and, and sort of get everyone to pay, if you actually want this to happen in a market, then how else can you make it happen? Yeah. You know? Choices are few here. Either customers have above CPI rises in their cost of internet access or other parties come to the table and are levied in some way to meet the cost of the investment. And they're kind of phrasing this like either you become digital slum, mm. just no new investment, you're just a backwater, uh. or we force these other people, more than 5% of the content, you know, traffic stream, who are all Americans, pst, we force these other people to basically shovel money in to allow us to build this better infrastructure. Oh, policymakers, what do you think? Great idea? Yeah? You there? Mm. I think this one is going to play out for a little while longer, Jeff. Well, what Rudolph also found, and this is kind of where it comes to the cutting point, was an investor briefing model by Vodafone. Ah. And what Vodafone certainly showed is that from the period oh, on the last sort of four or five years, network traffic has increased remarkably, up by a factor of seven. So streaming is really, really, really popular. And a huge amount of the network is carrying more traffic than ever before. So there is some case to actually say, we need bigger networks all the way down to the access line. We need to carry up to seven times the traffic in under five years. This is a lot of traffic and it's kind of, where do you go in the next five? How does this scale out? But Vodafone let the cat out of the bag. And the other thing they had in their investor briefing was the cost per gig of delivering that gig. Ah, so they're still in gig pricing, not access availability, but the delivery cost per gig. The delivery cost, which has come down by a factor of seven. Ooh. So this argument of we have costs, if you go to the how many bits are sent, is looking a little like per bit, it got cheaper. So the capital intensity, as Vodafone describe it, is constant. So in other words, as consumers, if you keep paying the same amount, that will cover our costs for much, much bigger networks without anyone else. And that was kind of the chink that has come through in this entire case that what that argument that the European telcos were mounting conveniently disregarded the fact that when you do these technology transitions and when you actually upgrade your technology, the unit costs plummet, just absolutely plummet. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you're not saying, well, seven times the traffic, seven times the dollars, seven times the cost. You're kind of going, seven times the traffic, same cost. Yeah. Because technology is actually prodigious. It delivers. It's very hard not to see parallels to what is emerging in the airline industry, where the cost of redeploying newer airframes reduces the cost per mile to fly those passengers. And so aspects of the capital investment to own a plane, huge sums of money. The profit per seat can get a lot better. So now let's go back and look at the motivations of the telcos. 
Do you want to continue to operate the tired old infrastructure and not reinvest and try and make it an American slash EU political problem? Interesting choice. The prospect of windfall profits over the next few years is, I think, enticing. Withholding technology, oddly enough, even though it gives consumers and you a better deal, looks like being a short-term advantageous strategy, a tactic. And that's kind of sad because in some ways, if we don't build a digital infrastructure that's capable, you are a slum. You are a backwater. Every other piece of social fabric actually these days relies on a massively capable digital infrastructure. And yes, there's a lot of television in that, yay. But there's also everything else that goes with it. We now depend on this fabric. Point of sale, under control, urban infrastructure. Access to doctors, access to government services, assume viable internet at scale. So I I was trapped a couple of days ago in a space where I could only get modem access. Do you remember modems? Oh, Oh, vaguely. 64 kilobits. Nothing worked. Nothing worked. My browser died. Everything died. And it's kind of, we may not have deliberately gone there, but the entire digital experience is now megabits tending yeah, to gigabits Yeah, the floor of second. minimum acceptable has risen from kilobits to megabits and might be approaching tens of megabits. And if you withhold that technology from an entire national community, it's just self-defeating. It really is. Why should I shovel the money into someone who just is unwilling to actually bring this technology to get deployed? And that, to me, is the saddest part of all this. Yeah. In fighting a battle over trying to get the Americans to pay, if that's what it is in the crudest sense, I think they're actually holding Europe to ransom in a space where it needn't be that way. As Vodafone has showed, all I need to do is charge the same amount and I can keep pace with a massive escalation in demand. What's the problem? It's expectations of rate of profit and capital investment. It's, It's business, Jeff. It's business. And so I hope the dear old EU policymakers look very hard at Vodafone's investor relation reports and place that as a sanity gauge against the strident calls from Etno and GSMA over how life is intolerably bad and they're being squeezed financially. Maybe cast an eye over the numbers and think a little harder. So I have to thank Rudolf Vandenberg for bringing this to the attention at RIPE. I found this a remarkably yeah. illuminating session. The session is online. People can hear the original at the RIPE. The session is online from RIPE 88, I believe. I will include a link in the podcast blog. Jeff, that's been fascinating. Thank you for a most enlightening economic conversation. Thanks, George. Always a pleasure. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember, the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.